Welcome back to QAV episode 620. We're recording this on Tuesday, the 16th of May, 2023. It's about 2.21 p.m. on the East Coast. The uh, market's having a terrible day again. How are you, TK? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> having a better day than the market, I guess. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it's gloomy out there. I believe that uh, today at some point, the uh, former boss of the RBA, Glenn Stevens, gave a little talk at some little conference, uh, the Westpac Melbourne Institute. No, that was something else. Anyway, no, he gave a little talk. Oh, here we go. The Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association, where he said uh, there's probably going to be more interest rate rises. Market obviously took him seriously because uh, I remember I woke up this morning and read the fin and it said, Market was going to open higher today, and uh, it did not open higher. It opened much lower. So, um, anywho, yeah, but like, yeah, it always amazes me how, like, I watch the morning news as well, and it's going to be, oh, the market's expected to open higher today. It's like, honestly, if you knew that with a hundred percent accuracy, <laughs> what are you doing working as a reporter at the Fin or for ABC News or whatever? Just trade the market, but of course, it doesn't have any sort of correlation to what's going to happen next all these financial journalists would be rich they'd be doing the podcast yeah yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> well let me talk about uh the portfolio i uh did my weekly report on it this morning it's looking pretty good since um inception for new listeners that's the beginning of september 2019 our dummy portfolio is up, according to Nevexa, is up 16.99% per annum. CAGA versus the STW is up 7.21, a little bit less than two and a half. I think I worked it out this morning. It's about 2.35 times the index over that period of time, which is pretty good, coming up to, what, four years? This financial year benchmark is still ahead. It's 16.41. We're 12.33% per annum for the financial year. So. We're having an okay year, but not as good as the index for the quarter. Uh, still kind of neck and neck. It's overtaken us a bit recently, 1.65 versus us, 1.38 for the quarter. In the last week, eh, it's been kind of, you know, fair to middle and a few stocks are up. ASG is up 7.3% this week, in the last week. I mean, DUR up 6.74, SRG up 3.47. On the other end of the scale, SKT down 3.61, and I just bought that too. Replaced buyer <laughs> with SKT, it immediately went backwards, so thanks for that, Sky. Reject Shop is down 3%, IGL down 2.12%. But, you know, really, just a cut, no, nothing big, nothing big up, nothing big down. The market's kind of just coasting sideways uh, recently, nothing really exciting going on. You had any, any big wins lately, TK? In my portfolio? No. <laughs> no, I'm going to have to flag with full transparency. I'm probably going to, I'm almost definitely going to underperform the market with my own portfolio this uh, financial year as well. But we'll wait and see. Think a miracle could happen in the next month or so. But uh, yeah. Are you, are you bothered? Are you concerned about that? No, no, not at all. I mean, there's been plenty of years where I've underperformed and it often gets followed by outperformance because that's how statistics work, right? When you have a 
an average outperformance, any sort of underperformance is going to be followed by outperformance. And if you just stick to the system and just keep doing what you're doing, you know that eventually it comes good. And psychologically, there's always a temptation to to say, oh, I should have just bought, I should sell everything and buy an index fund, right? It's probably the wrong time to do that. Once you get to near the end of the year and you found out you've underperformed, <laughs> it's it's more likely to be your chance to regress to the mean and outperform than there's the indexes. So yeah, it's it's the wrong time to change tack. Yeah, but that book, uh, What Works on Wall Street, I read a year or so ago, he said that's what a lot of the professional fund managers he knows kind of do. They'll follow one sort of system of investing for six months or a year and it works well. And then when it stops working, they'll try and jump on another horse for a while and does it really work? Yeah. And that's, that's the real advantage that we have over the professional fund managers. I mean, we're kind of professional because we're doing a podcast about it, I guess. But I mean, the ones that have to go out into the market every half or every year and have their performance measured. I mean, yeah, if we had a fund out in the market and we underperformed, we'd have uh, people redeeming. Um, and so we'll do everything we can to try and get back to the index. And guess what? If you do that enough times, you hug the index, which is what a lot of the fund managers do. So the people are paying fees for no benefit. Or they make dumb decisions like, you know, it's it's the one time you underperform in a long period of outperformance and so people sell. And, of course, you bounce back the next year and keep bouncing back and they've left the train. So, yeah. But if I look at the all odds for the last year, 12 months today, it was trading at uh, 7,350. Today it's at 7,432. So it's really just gone horizontal for <laughs> 12 months. It uh, hasn't been a great time for the market. If I go back two years today, it was 7,299, and it's now 7,450, so 7,430. So how does the index go up 16%, like you said? Well, that's the STW I'm comparing it to. Not the, it's like the 200, not the All Lords. Okay. So the All Lords is a little bit uh, broader, right? Yeah, a little bit broader, but it should still, the, two, the STW should make up the bulk of it. Well, if I go back uh, two years ago, the STW was trading at 65. It's now at 65. So the STW hasn't moved in two years, according to Yahoo Finance. One year ago, it was at 66. Now it's at just under 66. So it hasn't moved at all in a year. But if you go back to the beginning of this year, it started at 62. And it's now up at 66. So it's. Oh, sorry. Okay. So you're looking at a rolling 12 month versus the financial year. Yeah. If I look at, you know, the last, well, six months, it hasn't moved much either 60, 64 to 65. So yeah, it's a little bit different to the all odds, but yeah, it too has been sort of traveling more or less horizontally over the long haul. Hey, let me ask you a question. Um, PRN, Tony. PRN. I was looking at them, Parenti, this is. I was looking at them last week. They were a buy last week. I was struggling to find anything to buy to add to our portfolio, sitting on a bit of cash in the light portfolios and in my super, trying to find something to buy. PRM was a buy, but a hard one to figure out this. And I ended up buying it and then real wanting it a couple of days later. So it didn't really work out. But it was it's exposed to the mining sector. And I was trying to figure out, exactly what kind of risk it was. So as I understand it, Parenti basically sell picks and shovels to the uh, mining sector, but they're involved in lots of different projects, copper, gold, coal, 
all of which at the time were a sell or a Josephine. Gold is a buy this week. No, it turned around. But I couldn't figure out how closely their revenue is actually tied to the underlying commodities of the sectors that they serve. You ever done any digging into PRN and thought deeply about their exposure to underlying commodities like that? Should we tie them to the underlying commodities of the businesses they're involved in, or if they, are they one layer abstracted out of that? Is my question. Yeah, it's a good question. I haven't done a lot of thought about it, uh, but I did look at PRN when you raised the question before the show, and to me, it looks like they're largely servicing the gold industry, gold mining industry. Yeah, mostly gold. Which, as you say, is um, is having a good a good run. So I would think, without doing any research into PRN or knowing it that well, that, yeah, if you're servicing a one particular commodity industry, you're going to be tied to how the industry's going. I would have thought if the gold, industry, gold mining industry was turning down that there'd be less outsourcing work. I think Parenti make a lot of money from operating mines on people's behalf, so contract mining as well as providing engineering services and data services and things like that. But you would have thought that work would ebb and flow with the, the underlying industry. So, And I think in this case, it's it's mainly gold. So, yeah, I'd be tempted to use the gold commodity chart to work out whether the buy or sell this one. Right. Well, I'm just, I don't know, like if I look at the gold chart itself, let's say over the last uh, five years, and then I overlay Parenti on that, uh, they look nothing alike. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there goes my theory. Well, I mean, should there be a correlation if they're tied that closely to gold? You'd, you would think there'd be some correlation, right? I would have thought so, yeah. I mean, they're not going to have the one-to-one correlation perhaps because, well, I don't know what their contracts are like, Cam, if they're, if they're Doing contract mining for a gold company, are they getting a percentage of the the revenue or percentage of the earnings, or are they just getting paid time and you know for their time basically? And I'm not sure. I would assume it's the latter, but I didn't drill it. But if I look at their five year chart, you know, Parenti five years ago was trading at about dollar uh, seventeen. They're currently trading at a dollar nineteen. So that's been their five-year going sideways. They went up, you know, a bit and then down and all that kind of stuff. They've had some peaks and troughs, but they're basically exactly where they were five years ago. If I look at the gold price, Australian gold price over the last five years, you know, it was uh, sort of sixteen forty-four. It's now three thousand and twelve. So it's doubled in the last five years. Parenti has just gone sideways. So I don't know. They don't seem to be correlated. Okay. Well, look, if they're not correlated, there's no point using gold. I'm just looking at them in Stock Doctor, and they're not, yeah, they, they have diverged quite a bit. That's the test I always do on these things, is is that correlating with a commodity chart. Yeah. I looked at gold. It didn't seem to correlate with gold. I looked at copper and nickel. Um, didn't seem to correlate with those very well either. So, I don't know. I just ended up taking a punt, and it didn't go well. So... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, that's the thing. If you can't make your mind up, just go back to the normal three-point trend lines and the rules to buy and sell. Because there's, I mean, as you say, there's a lot, a lot can go on from a corporate level with a company like this. Like it could be acquiring companies or selling companies. It could be winning contracts, losing contracts, all that kind of thing, um, which aren't necessarily correlating with the, and then you got the gold price on top of that and how the industry is doing on top of that. But normally it's a, it's a broad brush. If the industry is doing well and you're contracting to the industry, you'd have to be really stuffing up to, not make money. Yeah. 
Oh, well, there you go. Uh, that was a tricky one. Didn't really get me anywhere, but um, it's been a tough week for a lot of stocks, so I wasn't surprised that I had to rule one it. Buffett. Oh, we, we spoke a lot about Warren last week. I don't want to speak anymore, but I did read this. I like this. Uh, he was talking about Ben Graham's book, The Intelligent Investor. He said, I wrote HarperCollins a note the other day because they're bringing out another edition. I asked them how many copies have been sold, and they said the records didn't go back far enough, but they had 7.3 million copies of this little book that changed my life. Everybody keeps bringing out new books and saying a lot of other things, but they aren't saying anything that's as important as what he said in 1949 in this relatively thin little book. Now, I've got a copy of The Intelligent Investor, and I don't think it's a thin little book. No, it's not. (laughs) And it's also damn hard to read, too, because it was written in the 1930s. And uh, I don't know how, like, they've obviously sold millions and millions and millions of copies of this book over the last whatever, how many years that is, 70-odd years, 80 years? Well, no, it's 100, I think, isn't it? Well, he he said 1949. What year did it come out? Oh, okay. Okay. No, possibly, yeah. But, you know, there aren't millions and millions and millions of successful value investors, I'm pretty sure. Mm. There's probably a lot, but I don't think there's that many. And, you know, that just made me think, I mean, one, what he's saying is, I think, terrific. Like, nobody's written anything that's better than the intelligent investor in terms of the underlying ideas and the influence of those ideas. But just gets back to what you said. Like, I remember buying it the first time when I was 18 or 19 and trying to read it. And just doing my head in, I, I gave up, and you know, and I think that's um, like the value of what we do on the show is trying to take these ideas and making them digestible for people, like teaching it in a way that those of us that have a, a, an average intelligence can get our heads around and, and apply uh, the ideas behind it. Yeah, I think what Warren's saying is there are some key concepts in the intelligent investor which are good for all time, really, even though. You can queue up Alan Kohler and say this time is different. It's still the fact that the the market's a weighing machine, not a weighing machine in the short term, but a voting machine in the short term, weighing the te- weighing machine in the long term, and that you need a margin for safety when you buy things. I mean, they're probably the two key concepts. And then the mis- the concept of Mister Market, I think, is another one that was there. But you know, there's a whole rest of the book on things that Ben Graham was talking and and you know, I recall things like net nets and. He goes into when you should be buying bonds versus shares and um, how to find a deep value stock by looking at different key metrics like we do and coming up with a you know a score for the stock. So things have evolved since then, but the basic concepts are just are just as beautiful as ever, as as simple and unchanged as they ever was. So when people come along and say this time it's different, it's just rubbish. It is different every time. It's always different, Tony. <laughs> it's never the same. Well, the thing that's the thing that's not different is we haven't evolved in the last hundred years. It's not possible that we could have evolved in the last hundred years. So the the stock market is always going to be Mister Market, Mister Manic Depressive, who comes to you with a price every day, and people are going to buy based on where they think the votes are, or they're going to vote rather than on the stories, rather than um, weighing up the balance sheet and the P and L of the company. That hasn't changed in hundred years. And Ben Graham was the first person to, you know, to talk about that. And as Warren said, we quoted last week, the opportunity investing is always other people doing dumb things. <laughs> that doesn't change either. 
That's right. <laughs> this time is different. Is not different. That's the dumb thing that's being said before the dumb thing that gets done every time. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I like that. Uh, let's talk about the buy list, Tony. So Alex and I were having a chat yesterday, and the question came up, and I know the two of you have been talking about it as well. Should we keep putting the Josephines and stocks that have an underlying commodity sell in the buy list each week and then just forcing everyone to filter them out when they're actually trying to decide what to buy, or should we leave them in? And Alex and I talked about it in some depth yesterday, and one of the reasons I kind of like having at least the Josephines and the commodity sells also in there is because... They can change during the course of the week, and I, I don't want to have to do a new buy list every day, and I do need to trade stocks, particularly with the size of the portfolios that, that we manage now several times during the week often, and you know what I can do now is just use stock history to update the share price, and um, I can quickly check to see if it's a, still a Josephine, what the sentiment is, and you know the, it, it may be the commodity, like gold did change from last week to this week. Uh, Commodities can change sometimes relatively quickly, and we want to get in on it when it changes. But do you have any thoughts on whether or not we should take them out? Is there any reasons to take them out of the buy list each week, apart from making the buy list smaller? No. So I think I probably confused Alex on the weekend because she rang up and said, she asked me whether she should include the stocks that, had, that weren't above their second buy line but were above their buy line. And I said, well, they're Josephine's. You include those. And she said, well, I've only got buy and sell. What do I do? So I said, well, they're a sell, so you can't include them. Wait, wait, no, they're not, no, they're not a sell. Well, she said, I've only got buy and sell. What category do I put them in? So I said, well, they're not buy, so they've got to be a sell. Right? But if we hold them, we wouldn't sell them. Correct. But she only had buy or sell. And, you could, and I wouldn't buy them if they were below their second buy line. No. So... That I confused her, and then she rings up a little bit later and says, I've only got 20 stocks on the buy list tab. What have I done wrong? <laughs> and I thought straight away, well, I probably made the wrong call there. So I go back and make all those stocks that haven't got a second buy line buys and see what you get, and she got the normal buy list that came out. Long story short, I agree with the way it's done now. Include them all, but let people know that as of the time of the download, this one's a commodity sale, this one's a Josephine, and that they should check if they're you know, not doing it on the same time as the BIOS, just download it. Yeah, we do have, thanks to, I don't know, one of our club members, I can't remember who it was now, might have been Chris or somebody, but somebody built, or Gary, somebody built some code that we put out in the BIOS now that does show people what's a Josephine, uses Excel stock history to do that. So, yeah. I mean, Taylor sometimes complains to me, oh, it's too hard. I have to filter everything when I get your buy list. I have to filter this out and filter that out. And just give, I just want it clean so I can just look at it and know what to buy. And I get the rationale, but yeah, as I said, things change quickly over the course of the week. Like uh, BRI, Big River Industries, I added that to one of our light portfolios today. It was a Josephine yesterday when I checked it. Today it's not. So, or I was having a down day yesterday, maybe, and today it's not one of the two. But, uh, you know, things change uh, day by day. So, and if it's not on the buy list, you don't know to check it. If it is on the buy list, 
So it's past our, our fundamental checks. It's above the bio, the the first byline. It's above the cell line, but it's a Josephine. You can you, you, it's there, so you can quickly do a check as the week progresses, rather than having to do a new buy list every day. Yeah. So just help me out here, because that's the way I do it. So if I'm needing to sell a stock, like I've just received, say I just received an alert that something's crossed the sell line, I need to sell it. I will download from Stock Doctor into my version of the buy list, which I think is different to the one you put out. I download it and then I'll call up the scorecard, which is put out every week, and check for the commodities if it's a commodity stock, or I'll jump into the bread later and then check for a second byline or a Josephine for some other reason before I buy. And maybe it's a bit easier for me because I'm looking at large ADT stocks. So I might only have to do that half a dozen times uh, before I exhaust the buy list or, or find something that I want to buy. But that's the process I go through every time, regardless of who puts one out. So what are you getting with the new download that you do from Stock Doctor? If you do one on Monday and you do one on Thursday, the only thing that's changed in Stock Doctor, most unless it's reporting season, but the only thing that's going to have changed is the price, right? Correct. So in the version of the buy list that we put out on a Monday that uses Excel stock history, every time I open the spreadsheet, it updates the prices of everything. It doesn't update. It doesn't update it in a way that it updates the scores. So the QAV score doesn't change over the course of the week as the price changes. I'm sorry. that I just was going to say, if you really wanted to be anal about it, you should check the PE ratio. The, 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 if it was scoring on the PE ratio being the lowest, that the price movement hasn't changed that score. Yeah, those things could change. Yeah, but then again, we're only talking about maybe a slight change in the rankings and those kind of things. If something comes up to buy and I look at the price when we did the analysis on Sunday night and I look at the price today and it's changed by 10%, I will run the numbers again. Yeah, okay. If it's changed by that much, I'll run it just to make sure it hasn't, you know, the QAV score hasn't dropped below 0.1 or whatever. But generally, you know, prices don't change that much over the course of a couple of days. The only other thing I do check from time to time, especially if I can't find something on the buy list, one is to check that there hasn't been something reporting in the intervening period. So in the last couple of weeks, the bank stocks have reported, for example, and stocks like Elders and Eclipse. Well, Eclipse has got a new name, but the old Eclipse haven't reported. So that's one thing. But they should come up on your buy list when you do a new download as if they've changed their scores. But they do require you to go through and do the manually entered data, at least on my buy list. And the other one is um, to go down down the list into what's not on the buy list, but I still, in my version of the spreadsheet, I still have those stocks that didn't make it and look to see if anything is popping up close to sentiment and then go and check on those. Because like you said, if the sentiment's gone up by 10% since the last time you did a buy list, they still might be coming out in the stock filter and in our spreadsheets as not having passed the buy line. So yeah, you can drop down. The way this my spreadsheet works, if you drop down to things which are scoring above 0.1 again, but they have negative sentiment, you'll see them all grouped in the spreadsheet. And I will run through those occasionally as well to make sure nothing new has come on the buy list that we haven't got a sentiment check for. Right. And so they might have gone from a 0.08 to a 0.1. Well, yeah, well, they might still be 0.08 because we haven't updated the manually entered data because sentiment checking is still a manually entered data thing. So, yeah, they might be 0.08 on the spreadsheet. But if you go into the bread later, you might see they're a buy because the stock price has moved. So you've got to go in and add that that score and then check it again. Yeah, so there is good reason for uh, doing it if you want to be that anal about it, doing it. 
each time you run it, not just using Monday's list and updating the prices, I get it. Correct. I'm not going to do that, though. <laughs> I think it's probably fine to just use the weekly one that Alex does and that you guys pull together and provide. And as you say, just finesse it during the week. And, I, you know, before I buy anything, I am in the habit of checking the news, all that kind of stuff, just in case. <laughs> I, still, I still miss things from time to time. But, uh, yeah, trying to be, trying not to let anything slip through the cracks. All right, uh, I've got one more thing to talk about. Plato Investment Management, Dr. David Allen sort of read, I think, something in Livewire, that a quote from him yesterday that I liked. He said, I just learned the other day that the great Don Bradman, the best cricketer of all time, only hit a handful of sixes in his career. And his whole philosophy is you don't get out if you just hit the ball on the ground. And Alan went on to say, that's very much akin to our strategy. We're looking to consistently eke out alpha every day, every week, every month, rather than betting on any one stock or one thematic. I thought, well, that sounds like us. It does. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Yeah. And I've spoken about it before. I think there's only been one time in my investing history of 20 plus years where I've had, you know, a really good return of 20 times my um, initial outlay. So generally, it's just things getting, yeah, I've had plenty of three and four times my initial outlay, so home runs. But yeah, mostly it's it's some up, some down, and overall, they're 20% up. I actually looked this up because, you know me, I know nothing about sport. I did know who Don Bradman was, but that's about it. I did look it up. He hit six sixes in his entire career. That's incredible. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> the greatest batsman of all time only hit six sixes. Yeah, because he thought if I hit the ball into the ground, I can't get caught. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he's right. So he's, he was like risk pricing the, the his style of play. It's like getting getting a getting six runs for hitting it over the fence wasn't enough of a score to recompense taking the risk. Yeah, right. You know, one of the things that I love explaining to people about QAV, like new club members, had a couple of Zoom calls with new club members this week, welcoming them and just you know sort of talking through some stuff explaining some of the finer points and the history of it and whatever history of us and the show. But yeah, just uh, that very idea. Like it's, you know, just buying good quality companies that are producing, they have a good history of producing a lot of cash, trying to buy them when we can get them at a discount to what we think the valuation probably is. And just playing the odds on that, you know, more of them will do well than won't do well. And We'll just make good, solid returns over a long period of time. You don't have to try and shoot out the lights. Don't have to take big swings. Don't have to hit sixes. It's just consistent, disciplined performance. And we're also negating survivor bias by doing that too, right? Because, I mean, even though we are surviving in the market because we're doing that, which is good, but the financial press and and the financial bookstores are full of stories about people who took outrageous risks and made a billion dollars, right? And so people think that's the way I have to invest. But what's not in those bookstores is the other 999 people who tried to do the same thing and they're now waiting tables at the local cafe or something. So, yeah. That's the book we should write. How to Take Big Risks and Fail. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, we, we could. We could. We could show people not what to do. Just go go out and interview hundreds and hundreds of people who thought they were really clever and then failed and never recovered. Or who took a big risk. 
And that's one of the problems with investing I've, I've found among people is that it's, it's a bit like um, people who gamble. It's, it, yeah, if their first win is big, they're, they're hooked. If their first win, if they lose money on their first win, they go, oh, it's not for me, <laughs> which is probably equally as bad, at least in terms of investing. They should just, you know, learn how to do it better or, or give their money to someone who does know how, what they're doing. But, yeah. Well, that's what I did. We talked last week about hot copper. You know, I remember in the dot-com periods, betting, gambling, a lot of money on a couple of shares, friends of mine's shares, and uh, it going south and just going, okay, well, obviously that was a stupid decision. I don't know what I'm doing. I better just stay out of that. <laughs> but I guess uh, I'm just kind of wired differently. Like if I fail, and I've failed plenty of times, my brain just goes, okay, what did I do wrong? How do I do it better? If they can do it, I can do it. Get your game face on. Let's work it out. That is different. I think, you know, that is um, one of your one of your strengths is just tackling that. And then you've put the work behind it for 30 years, figuring it out. Most of us, yeah, you know, I guess people do do that in different aspects of their life. Probably just not all of us do that. They'll do that in their careers or they'll do that in a, a sport or a hobby or whatever it is, learning a musical instrument, learning how to play chess. Just not nothing that makes money. <laughs> not investing. <laughs> nothing important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Learning what not to do is as equally important as learning what to do. That's. I've always said it's it's, it's just as important to have a friend who knows everything as it is to have a friend who knows nothing because you can learn from both. And shout out to Ruddy if he's listening. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna say I'm not gonna ask you which one of those I am to you. <laughs> I don't need to ask. What have you got on your notes to talk about before we get into the QA this week, TK? I only had one thing to say, and this is kind of a follow-on from the pulled pork curse. Someone asked a couple of weeks ago to do a pulled pork on one of the there was two lithium mining companies on the bio list. One was Pilbara Minerals, and then the other one was Alchem, A-L-K-E-M. Uh, and I chose Pilbara Minerals, but Alchem was part of a merger deal in the last week and their shares have shot up like 20% or something. So <laughs> I now know I can if I can find an industry where there's two companies on the buy list and do a pulled pork by one, I can short them, but I can also go long on the other one. I don't do a pulled pork on. <laughs> so good luck to anyone who owns Alchem. They were on the buy list and they were in a lithium mining stock, which was an, an, an unusual thing to find on our buy list. But of course, lithium, with lithium price being up, they're throwing off lots of cash. That's why they're there, I guess. But yeah, they uh, they announced a huge merger deal during the week with a US company and uh, their stock went up a lot. And that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week, runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and, and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have invites to to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc. Sign up for the two-week free trial and check out all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you uh, like the idea of value investing QAV style but don't feel like you have the time or resources to uh, you know, learn how to do QAV for yourself, think about signing up for QAV Lite 
That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. It's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus and then where are you? But, you know, while he's not, we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. That's it. If you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episodes. And if you have any questions, uh, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right, have a great week and good luck with your investing. The QAV Podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129271. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.